Hello and welcome to Listen Closely with John and Chris. I am Chris out here in rainy Washington, but then again, it's Washington, so what do I expect? With me as always is my co-host, John, back on the East Coast. John, how goes it? Well, you know, it goes, Chris. Uh, you said it's rainy out there in the uh, Pacific Northwest, and I will say that out here in the uh, New England part, uh, in, in the northeastern part of the country, it's colder than a witch's tit. And I will also say, whoever coined that phrase must have been a real sick son of a bitch. Yeah, you've, I don't even know how you come up with that. I don't either. And, you know, there's certain things like I'm very intrigued about in terms of I want to know the backstory. I want to know all the depraved details. But then there's some things like this that it's best that we don't talk about. It's best we leave it alone. Frankly, I'm a little upset that you even brought it up. But, uh, but speaking of bleak, dreary landscapes. And depraved. And depraved. We did, a, uh, we did an episode a couple months back about the summer of 1995, which of course was right after we graduated high school. And the gist of that episode, if you haven't listened to it, uh, was that that was a very weird time for music, the mid 90s. We both sort of feel that it was kind of a wasteland. It was post grunge, there was a lot of neo hippie jam band stuff. You had maybe like the very beginnings of some of the bubblegummy pop that was gonna come into play in the, the later 90s. And for me personally, it was, it was a pretty depressing time musically, but terrible. there were some diamonds in the rough and some yes. places where the tide started, started to turn. And uh, the band that we're gonna look at today was a bit of an oasis for me. And I use that phrase because <laughs> Oasis obviously was one of the big bands of the 90s that is responsible for the kind of Brit pop redux. Uh, but for me, Oasis was never my favorite bit Brit pop band by any means. You know, they're, no. they're great in their own way, but uh, the band that we are doing today and the album that we're doing today, to me, was a bit of salvation. Uh, do you want to do the honors? Oh, man, it would be my honor. Um, a bit of a salvation is to put it mildly. I want to say that up front. And I also want to say that if, uh, if a time machine were to exist and I wanted to go back to 1996, and I don't want to go back to 1996, um, <laughs> This would be the mechanism. This album would be the time machine. We're going back to 25 years ago. Uh, October 30th of 1995 is the UK release date of this seminal album. The album is Different Class. The band is Pulp. And man, oh man, am I excited to talk about this album. Whew, it is incredible. I think it's... I think it gets a little bit lost 25 years later. I, you know, I, I don't think it, I mean, it gets a lot of critical acclaim, but I think in more popular circles, it really gets overlooked. Uh, you know, to me, it's a beautifully rich album with a great sound. It's subversive and weird and fun mm -hmm. and dirty and also deep. It is. You know, what are some of the, the first things that come to mind when you think of this album? Well, I think... <laughs> I think I used the word a little while ago, depraved. And mm -hmm. I think there is an element of that with this album. Mm -hmm. uh, but I also think it is deep in a strange way. I think it can be dirty. I think it, be, it could be hilarious. I think it can also be very sad. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I feel as though it's, it's always written and, and it was written and always sung from the standpoint of somebody who's very much an outsider. I think, I mean, just the title alone, different class, yep. you know, that gives it an element of sadness, I think. But on the surface, the production and the sound can also be very fun. It can be very sexy. It's a brutally honest album, too. And I think that's one of the things that makes it really, really amazing. It's brutally honest, but unlike a lot of other albums then, then in that era, it's not the least bit boring. Yes. And, you know, you've spoken a lot this season, Chris, about music from the early to mid-1990s, I think, took itself too seriously and wasn't having quite enough fun. And then along comes Pulp, and they were quite the opposite. They managed to be significant. They managed to be deep and relevant, like a lot of their contemporaries. But the difference was 
they were having fun. Yes. And this band and this album in particular, they were everything that mid-90s rock here in the United States were not. Sleazy, cheeky, twisted, sometimes glamorous, sometimes hilarious, sometimes sexy. It's a lot of things I love about this album. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with all of that. I think, I think you nailed it. That They show that, listen, to take on difficult subjects, you know, there's, there's so much about class, about sex, about relationships, about drugs in here, depression. You, you can do all that stuff and not have the music sound grating and painful. You know, you can dress it up and still make it rock and roll or pop music and have fun. I mean, this is, this is music. You know, you don't, you, I don't know anybody who's listening to music to, to feel annoyed. Um, you know, and I think there's this juxtaposition between their beautiful pop melodies and some of the subject matter that they take on that kind of gives it a, a whole other dimension. So I, I love it. I mean, it's interesting to me that this is a band, you know, this was a, a big critical hit for them. They had been around for like 17 years when this came out. Yeah, I think they, they released their first single, I want to say in like 82 or 83, but they had been around a few years before that. Yeah, yeah. And they, they kind of went through some different uh, iterations. You know, you can hear a lot of their influences. There's a lot of Leonard Cohen, I noticed, listening this time. <laughs> it's funny. That's in my notes. Leonard Cohen and Roxy Music. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, sometimes they, you know, a song like I Spy on this album. I mean, it's just straight up Cohen for half of it, where Jarvis Cocker, the uh, front man of uh, Pulp is, you know, he's basically talking through half the thing, but it's, it's fantastic. Um, it is. And, and, you know, I do want to say that there were a few years there in the mid to late 1990s where Pulp was my favorite contemporary band, more than any other band that was out there, uh, more than U2. The trilogy of studio albums they released in the 1990s were unbeatable. You had 1994 His and Hers, which was their breakthrough album. It gave them their first hint of real commercial success. And I, I would actually consider that to be their best album. Mm -hmm. Then you have this album, Different Class, which made them superstars. In 1998's This Is Hardcore, which didn't quite equal its two predecessors, but was still a damn good album. And you mentioned something really important earlier, Chris. You talked about Oasis. And um, Pulp was a band that was having a lot more fun than any of the bands here in the States seemed to be having in 1995. 1996 they also look to be having more fun than their contemporaries in the UK and while Oasis and Blur were in the midst of their heated rivalry in 95 and 96 and they were busy hurling insults at one another and looking like a bunch of unkept hooligans <laughs> pulp I always sort of surmised were the ones that were kind of looking at those two bands knocking back some stiff drinks and just laughing at them uh, and having a hell of a good time. And for my money, Pulp are the much better band than Oasis or Blur. I, I agree. I agree. I never quite, I mean, I, mean I, I like some Oasis songs, certainly, but I mean, Oasis, you know, they were proclaimed, self-proclaimed, I think, also as the second coming of the Beatles. And I, I never quite got that. I, I think Pulp is, they just have a much more kind of diverse sound to them. Uh, and it's more complex, I think, the, their, their whole shtick. Um, and, and lyrically, there's a, they're a hell of a lot more interesting. Oh, my God, so much. Yeah, I mean, their lyrics are great. Uh, and I would argue Cocker is one of the funniest lyricists out there. I mean, there are moments in this album, and there are other albums, where if you listen closely, as we recommend you do with the title of this podcast, <laughs> the lyrics are absolutely hilarious. They are. They are. I mean, a lot of these, he takes kind of small, you know, he's like a, he's like a good uh, writer or comedian or anyone who can take these small moments in life and really see the depth uh, and the humanity and the humor in them and the absurdity in them. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and it's funny because you, you talked about his lyrics being so much reminiscent of Leonard Cohen. And I picked up that on that more so listening to this album a lot over the course of the last week. You know, he's always witty and insightful, like Cohen, mm -hmm. but he's also that awkward weirdo who can't quite fit in anywhere. Yeah. Uh, 
right? And, and like anytime you listen to the stories that Jarvis Cocker, and for those of you who don't know, Jarvis Cocker is, of course, Pulp's lead singer and their, uh, their lyricist. When you listen to the lyrics, you can't help but feel like he's always that awkward guy who's forced to watch the woman he wants being seduced by sort of a daft and vapid jock. You know, he's, he's the cuckold. Yeah. And, and he's kind of angry about it, but he's also kind of accepting of the fact that, well, this is who I am, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you look at one of the, you know, one of the biggest hits off of this, uh, Common People, I think really God. speaks yeah. to that. I mean, my God, about a, a woman who basically wants to sleep with a guy from the other side of the tracks because it's, it's novel and, and he's the guy from the other side of the tracks. I mean, he's the outsider. He's a quintessential outsider. Well, what about Disco 2000, which I think we'll probably talk a lot about a little later on, but I think so. You yeah. know, he's obsessed with his beautiful neighbor and, you know, he's got the, the great lyric, you were the first girl at school to get breasts. Martin said you were the best. All the boys all loved you, but I was a mess. I had to watch them try to get you undressed. We were friends that, as far as it went, I used to walk you home sometimes, but it meant nothing to you because you were so popular. Yeah, I think that's, while band like Oasis was coming out and in your face and trying to be the biggest, coolest rock stars in the world, you had something like that from Jarvis Cocker, which I think is just so much more relatable. I mean, you know, Absolutely. 5% of the people in the world have been in that situation with the, the cool girl that you kind of know, but you know, there's no way it's going to happen. And that's, that's, I think, part of what makes Pulp so great. Another thing that makes them great, and you're absolutely right. Um, I mentioned earlier, I, I, I sense a definite Roxy music influence here. But what amazes me is how Jarvis Cocker seems to be almost a low-rent send-up of Brian Ferry and Ferry's sort of classic lounge lizard image. Right. And, you know, whereas Brian Ferry's is very controlled, incredibly dapper uh, lounge lizard in his perfectly tailored suits, Cocker was this sort of awkward weirdo wearing outfits that looked like they were purchased at some second-hand store. And, uh, exactly. Like, Ferry's the lounge lizard we all wanted to be, but Jarvis Cocker is the lounge lizard that we all felt we probably were or probably could be. Um, <laughs> but at the same rate, the songs touch upon those recurring themes of faded glamour, of world weariness, or of a party that's gone on too long and left you a bit too hungover. That's a common thread in, in early Roxy music. And it's a common thread in pulp, and in particular on on different class. And I think that um, you know the songs in this album reek of sex, and more oh. often sexual frustration. <laughs> yeah. And, and and right, we 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 said Cocker is the quintessential outsider. Uh, he's the guy at the wrong place at the wrong time. He's the martini drinker stuck at a keg party, right. and he feels like he's forced to settle in his mediocre surroundings, but he knows deep down inside, he's so much better than who and what he's surrounded by, but he just can't seem to elevate himself from such inane mediocrity. And frankly, Chris, to the 19, 20 year old me, this album, these songs, the sentiments conveyed in them was everything. It resonated with me. I, I was just gonna say, listening to that explanation from you, it's, <laughs> becoming very clear why this album is uh so important to you. Yeah. Um I can remember, you know, I still remember hearing this as many of the albums that we've gone over it was at your house when we were probably 18, 19. I'm going to say 19 or 20, yeah. Yeah. Um and I remember you putting this on specifically Disco 2000 and it was one of those moments where it was like where has this sound been? because it was just exactly what I needed. And, you know, it, it certainly has a lot of hints of, you know, kind of the 80s uh, new wave Britpop sound. It does. You hear a lot of New Order, a little bit of Depeche Mode. Yeah, yeah. But it's, you know, it, it's different. But it, it, it certainly calls back to that. And, man, never forget it. I'll never forget just sitting there and you uh, on the, the old, I don't know what it was. It was Yamaha or... JVC or whatever, you know, popping this on. 
Iowa. Remember Iowa? A I W A. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, this received a pretty big critical reception. Yeah, this did. It sort of, I don't want to say it took the world by storm, but it, it took the critics by storm, and rightly so. Uh, it, it didn't only take us by storm. Uh, but it, in fact, for once, Rolling Stone magazine seemed to get it right and perfectly assess an album. Upon its release, they called Different Class a brilliant, eccentric, irresistible pop album about fucking and fucking up. The record is rife with sexual combat and bitter recrimination. <laughs> Spin Magazine said that the, al- the, the described the album as songs about naughty infidelities, sexless marriages, grown-up teenage crushes, twisted revenge fantasies. I like that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> obsessive, <laughs> obsessive voyeurism and useless raves. Songs that demand your full attention and deserve it. In a 1998 reader's poll, Q Magazine readers voted different class as the 37th greatest album of all time. And in a somewhat more contemporary review, 2011, BBC Music, on the occasion of, uh, I believe it was just about the 15th anniversary of the album's release, said that Different Class continues to reward the listener with some of the smartest, slinkiest, sauciest, spectacular pop songs of a decade that was, looking back, not that brilliant. Wow. That's, You're right. That's pretty high praise, yeah. Um, man, you know, a couple interesting things before we get to the, to the picks. Did you know who one of the producers was on this? It, was it Chris Thomas? Um, I believe you're right. Was he the uh, uh, the guy who had worked with the Beatles and a bunch? Well, of- Chris Thomas had worked uh, with Roxy Music in the 1970s. Okay, yes, it was him. But do you know who else was also involved? Is uh, Scott Walker of the Walker Brothers? That's right. And and Jarvis Cocker is a huge, huge Scott Walker fan of Walker's solo work. Yeah, and I, you know, I think when you when you get people like that involved, you know, that explains part of why this time in their careers, Pulp kind of went from really good to great. There's a uh, in, an interesting documentary they made a few years before Walker passed away, all about his his career and in particular his solo work. And they interview everyone. They interview David Bowie. They interview Jarvis Cocker, mm-hmm. and. Um, Jarvis Cocker emulated Scott Walker. He thought Walker was everything. And he even sings a little bit like Scott Walker, I think. And uh, Pulp has a great song on one of their, I think it's their last studio album. And the song is called Bad Cover Version. Yeah. And uh, there's a reference to Scott Walker at the end of the song. uh, Because they talk about, long story short, a um, woman who's left... Cocker for another man who's kind of a cheap knockoff of Cocker and he sort of reels off all the things that this man is like Um, he likens him to an own brand box of cornflakes to the stones since the 80s a later episode of Tom and Jerry and also the second side of Till the Band Comes In and Scott Walker's great solo album could have been Till the Band Comes In side A is his own material side b consists of cover songs that the record label made him perform on the album so there you go wow man well do you have anything to add before we go to the picks i don't all right let's do it let's do it so as much as we both like this album we always start with the nadir, the low point. John, very curious what you don't quite like as much on this album. There are a couple of tracks in this album that I'm not particularly fond of. But the one that sticks out as not being all that enjoyable for me is actually one you referenced uh, not too long ago. And that is track number four, I Spy. Mm. Um, 
not a terrible song, but I just find it to be a bit too much, too noisy, too repetitive, too annoying. Hmm. Uh, it's an okay song, but when you compare it to, I mean, it's sandwiched between Common People and Disco 2000. This song didn't stand a chance. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough fate right there. I think I get what Pulp were trying to do here, though. They wanted to create a song that, I think, maybe they were trying to create a song that sounded a little bit like a James Bond theme in terms of production. Mm-hmm. They tried. I think they missed the mark, though. But, you know, what's interesting, Chris, is that Pulp has always had sort of an interest and obsession of sorts with uh, the Bond franchise, as I think a lot of British bands have. Mm. I don't know if you're familiar with the process that a band has to go through to have their song be the James Bond theme song. Have you heard anything about this? They don't just get asked to do it? No. Apparently, the producers put out a request for demos. And whoever's uh, interested writes and records a demo. The only catch is that they have to use or try to use the title of that Bond film in the song itself. If you go on YouTube, you can watch these uh, rejected Bond theme songs. Uh, And it's fascinating. You have like the Pet Shop Boys submitted a demo for um, Living Daylights, which ultimately the producers went with AHA. Uh, Blondie wrote and recorded a demo for the theme song for For Your Eyes Only. More often than not, producers go with not the best song, but whoever's kind of the hip performer of the day. Sure. So Pulp submitted a demo for the theme to Tomorrow Never Dies, the 1997 Bond film with Pierce Brosnan. Mm-hmm. Uh, they figured they were riding the success of this album and they submitted a, a Bond theme. It's not very good. Producers ultimately went with Cheryl uh, Crow. So I feel like they've always had this kind of affinity for the Bond sound. And I, that's the impression I get with I Spy. Oddly enough, they, they got it right. Uh, there was a 1999 James Bond cover album where popular artists of the day recorded new versions of theme songs to all of the Bond films. Okay. Pulp stole the show. They covered All Time High, which was the theme to 1983's Octopussy. Right. And it's wow. exceptional. Yeah. yeah, that's fascinating. I didn't, I didn't know about that whole process. Um, and certainly with the title like I Spy, I mean, that may be a nod to, uh, you know, kind of tipping their hand there. Uh, and I think so. And I get what they're trying to do. I just think they missed the mark. I don't think it's a great song. I... You know, I don't, I don't love it, but I think it's pretty good. Um, I, I think it's, you know, it's very heavily to me Cohen influenced, uh, but it kind of goes back and forth between uh, this spoken word, uh, loungy, smoke-filled room Cohen lyric mm-hmm. to a much more brash, up-tempo thing, which. Um, to me, I kind of like, I think it's kind of a cool juxtaposition. I, you know, don't get me wrong, this is definitely not in like my top five songs on the album, but... Um, what did you go with? Man, it was tough on this. I, I feel like this album is really consistently good from start to finish. Um, I feel like there's like, you know, we're gonna get into our sleepers next. I think there's like six or seven songs that could be sleepers. Definitely, um, definitely. The one I ended up going with, this is a case of, I guess maybe similar. I, I don't hate it. Um, I, I don't go out of my way to avoid it. But uh, ironically, I think this is, is part of the reason that this album initially got a lot of attention. Uh, track number eight, Sorted for Ease and Whiz. Um, really? Which, you know, it's got kind of a fun, poppy hook. It's not a bad song. It's a song that's, that's basically about... <laughs> doing drugs and the emptiness. Yeah, the, you know, the excess, uh, the uh, emptiness that it leaves you with. Um, afterwards, I read that Jarvis Cocker heard a, a, a girl told him that she had been at a rave and everyone was sorted for ease and whiz and he thought it was a great phrase and so he used it later. <laughs> and, um, and as the media often does, I mean, anytime 
a controversial topic comes up, they immediately assume the worst. And so there were newspapers, you know, calling for this song to be banned when it came out. Um, you know, advocacy groups just going crazy. And, and the reality is it's, it's kind of an anti-drug song. It's kind of like, you know, if you do this, it's just kind of, you're a mind-numbed idiot. Um, it is an anti-drug song, but I think as are many anti-drug songs, the people who are taking the drugs are so screwed up that they don't recognize this. And they just love the fact that somebody's actually singing about their drug of choice or <laughs> right. drugs in general. Yeah, but I mean, in this case, it was, you know, it, it was other people too who were just assuming that, oh, well, it's about drugs, so uh, we need to ban it. And, uh, right. Right. you know, Jarvis Cocker was like, he came out after all of the controversy and was like, look, I think anybody who listens to this knows I'm not, you know, advocating drugs if you listen to the lyrics here. But um, uh, yeah, to me, it's fine. It just, it just kind of pales in comparison to a lot of the other songs. Um, That's interesting because I would put that as like maybe my fifth favorite song on the album. Okay. Huh. I, I, to me, there's, there's a couple, there's maybe two or three songs on this album that are uh, in the upper echelon. And then to me, it's like numbers, numbers four through 10, you know, maybe even further than that. I could almost flip flip anywhere in between there on a lot of these. So I, I think, you know, this one, it's not a real indictment on it. I just don't like it as much. Um, we, can, we can agree to disagree as we yeah, sometimes yeah. do. Now what, this I'm so curious for because I think there's so many options. What did you go yeah, with man. for your sleeper? Well, God, I mean, as you said, I mean, this album has a plethora of sleeper moments, right? Yeah. In, in fact, it's, it's mostly sleepers. Yeah. Uh, it, it, the album had two hit singles overseas, neither of which really received much in the way of airplay here in the States. Mm -hmm. So basically you have 12 sleepers out of 12 <laughs> possible songs to choose from. Yeah. Um, in the end, I went with a song that I took to relatively early on in my love of this album. It's nestled toward the end of the album. So I feel like it's often overlooked, but I really think it is uh, very much your typical sleeper and that's uh track number 10 the song is underwear great song great song it's uh it's dark it's a bit depraved and creepy in other words it's classic pulp and it fits on this album perfectly um i just from the get-go from when i first listened to the album i found the refrain to be quite catchy and more so than a lot of the other songs in the album uh, it, it never received much in the way of attention, though. And, uh, God, I love the lyrics. Uh, they are filled with dark, strange, and at times hilarious, what I like to call Jarvis Cockerisms. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. Why don't you shut the door and close the curtains? Because you're not going anywhere. He's coming up the stairs, and in a moment, he'll want to see your underwear. And I particularly <laughs> like the line, if fashion is your trade, then when you're naked, I guess you must be unemployed, yeah? Yeah, that's great. It's so, yeah, this is one of my three or four favorite songs on the album. Um, I, I just, I love that, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, this to me is about him watching a girl that he is in love with, uh, and she is waiting for this other guy to come upstairs into the room, uh, so that they can sleep together. But as he's watching her, she's kind of like, she's starting to have second thoughts and like really doesn't want to be there. And is sort of having this, this what am I doing here? How am I in here? Is, is that your take on this? It is. And I, I mentioned earlier that, you know, Jarvis Conker is very much the cuckold. And I think that in his mind, in this song, the closest he's ever going to get to having sex with this woman is watching her have sex with somebody else. <laughs> yeah. And as she's starting to get cold feet, as she is in this song, he's kind of like, no, 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 just go for it. Because you know, I want to see you do it. And I, it's never going to happen. It's never going to be me. So go yeah. screw this guy. So at the very least, I can hear what you sound like when you get off. And I can see what you look like naked. 
and I can imagine that it's me and it's hilarious and it's sad and it's everything that this album's about. Oh, it's yeah, it's unbelievable to come up with to come up with that and to write something that that's that's that kind of raw. Um, it's you know, unflinching. Yeah. If you close your eyes and just remember that this is what you wanted last night. So why is it so hard for you to touch him, for you to go and give yourself to him? Oh, Jesus, I couldn't stop it now. There's no way to get out. He's standing far too near. And how the hell did you get in here, semi-naked in someone else's room? I'd give my whole life to see it. Just you stood there only in your underwear. Come on, come on now. I mean, it's incredible. It's, it's so fucked up and amazing. And, and it's just a great, you know, you mentioned that just the, the music itself. I mean, it's, it's infectious. It's great. There's a great, you know, guitar riff in there and a uh, great song. Perfect. It's classic pulp, classic Jarvis Cocker. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I can say, so I, I almost, I almost went with that. Um, and I very easily could have. In the end, I went with, I think this is a, just a classic sleeper. It's the last song on the album. It's a fantastic coda. Great song. Um, Bar Italia. Um, and it's basically a song about a couple people who have had a, uh, you know, tied one on and they've got a hangover the next day. And I tell you, you can just, I mean, this song just takes me right back to like a Sunday morning you're a little hungover you know you head to the cafe and like you're just trying to trying to wake up um the sun's too bright um I I just it's just a perfect encapsulation of that um and it's just so beautiful and quiet I think it's just such a great way to end the song end the album it, it, it is and it's it's so yeah it sort of comes out of nowhere the song right yeah. Yeah. I mean, Why the name Bar Italia? Is that just what they figure the name of the bar was? I think that's where they are. Yeah. I mean, there's this, you know, if you can make an order, could you get me one? Uh, two sugars would be great because I'm fading fast and it's nearly dawn. Um, I guess nearly dawn. Maybe it's not as late as I thought it was. It's more uh, uh, kind of at the end of the night, but it's, you know, the same idea that you've been out, you, you know, the last verse that's what you get from clubbing it. You can't go home and go to bed because it hasn't worn off yet. And now it's morning. There's only one place we can go. It's around the corner in Soho where other people, where other broken people go. Let's go. It's just quietly beautiful. It is quietly beautiful. And I ask the, you know, why Bar Italia? Because there's part of me that's always felt, and this could be me looking into it a little too much, but there's, there's an element of this album and a lot of pulp stuff that's sort of Bellini-esque, um, you know, slightly surreal and, and there's an over-sexualization in a lot of the songs. Mm. And the way you said, Chris, that Bar Italia is kind of the perfect coda, uh, you know, that, that nasty hangover feeling where you have to come to terms with all the crazy things you did the night before or the entire weekend. It's it's almost reminiscent of the um, final scene of Fellini's uh, La Dolce Vita, where they're on the beach, mm. uh, and they're all, you know, Marcello Mastriani, like, he's been up all night, you know, that, there's the, the dead whale that's washed up uh, <laughs> ashore or something. And that's, in a weird way, I see this song as, as acting in that same manner as the last scene of, of uh, La Dolce Vita. So who knows? Yeah, no, and I think there's something cinematic to this album. I mean, there's so many little For like sure. vignettes. Um, but yeah, no, I I totally see that. And the the Fellini connection, I mean, there's you know, the parallel of absurdity in both of them that I think I think that's totally fair. Um There's a lot of absurdity. Yeah. Now we're gonna go to the zenith here, the high point. We are. And I'm curious. I think there's a couple possibilities, but uh what'd you what'd you go with? Uh, this was easy for me, and this should come as no surprise. This album has been in my life since 1996, when it was first released in the U.S. I went with the song that first turned me on to this album, and more importantly, to this band. It's a song that I love just as much now as I did in 1996, and that is track number five, Disco 2000. 
mm. without a doubt. I uh, first saw the video for it late one night on a Sunday night uh, and MTV's 120 Minutes, which was uh, that show they would put on Sunday nights at midnight where they would play all the alternative stuff. And listen, the rest is history. It's uh, the song's catchy, anthemics, it's anthemic, a little sad sometimes, but man, that refrain is more infectious than anything you were likely to hear in 1996. Oh, and I, I just I love the the story that it tells. Uh, I think it's um, an incredible story. How he's just you know he's got this crush on the girl from the neighborhood, and he doesn't feel as though he stands any chance with her at all. Um, and it's really just about his obsession with her all these years later. And did you know, Chris, that that's a true story? The song. I did. I was going to bring that up, but uh, but you've got the mic, so go for it. Well, don't mind if I do. Yeah. So uh, it tells the story of his neighbor, Deborah, and they were, in fact, neighbors, and they were born on the same day at the same hospital in Sheffield, England. And uh, yeah, he was just totally into her, but uh, never felt that she was that into him. And all these years later, he performed this song at Deborah's 50th birthday oddly enough, um, which must have been awkward to get up in front of Deborah, her, her husband, her children, extended <laughs> family, and, and sing the line, you were the first girl at school to get breasts. Um, That's and, what he says, uh, you know, I took some liberties in this. Uh, it's, it's took some liberties, yeah. There, there were other girls who had bigger sets than her. Um, and the Deborah that he's referring to is Deborah Bone, who went on to become a mental health guru in the UK. Um, and apparently her work with children's mental health was so innovative and it earned her the distinction of becoming a member of the Order of the British Empire. And uh, yeah. sadly, she would succumb to cancer in 2014, at the age of only 51. Yeah, that's, that's a crazy story. Um... But it's an amazing song, and it's in that song. It it's catchy, it's hilarious, it's downright sad sometimes. Um, it's really it's 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 a work of art. It's it's perfection. It's beautiful. It's so good. It's so infectious. And you know, as we mentioned earlier, this is the song that you first played for me off of this album that just opened my eyes to uh, this new sound that I hadn't hadn't heard this new band, um, to me new. Um, and my God, it was, it was such a breath of fresh air. It's the kind of song that you can't get out of your head. Um, you know, and it's, it's Cocker doing that storytelling thing, you know, his, his songs, you know, sometimes I, I print out the lyrics of these to, um, kind of have them with me as we're doing the show. And you can see like, a lot of artists, even even the good ones, I mean, reading their lyrics, when you read them without the music, sometimes it's kind of like, oh, there's, there's not a lot here. But with him, I mean, they tell these very clear, detailed, imaginative stories. Uh, and this is a perfect example. And I think the last lyric really shows the, I guess, the sadness, maybe, and how he truly did have a thing for for deborah and it's the what are you doing sunday maybe you can even bring uh, what to say you can even come and bring your baby yeah. um and it's to say like all these years later i don't care that you know you're married or you're divorced you had a child i'm you know i'm still into you um oddly enough though i read an interview with deborah bone where she claims that they did in fact hook up they did in fact have sex was that right yeah, that's what she said. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, her last name was Bone. Well, I, I didn't want to go there, but you, you've done it. Um, and his last name is Cocker. <laughs> oh, that would be one of those amazing wedding announcements if they had Cocker Bone wedding. <laughs> oh. uh, be there. Yeah, the wedding invitation could say, be there, two o'clock, at the fountain down the road. <laughs> You're right, exactly. Oh, it's an amazing song. It's an amazing song. Can I assume that's what you went with as your Zenith? You know, I mixed it up. I, I think in oh my, my 
deep in my heart, uh, that's my favorite song on the album. I have such a sentimental connection to that. Uh, but I kind of had a feeling you'd go there. And uh, I feel like there is very clearly a 1A on, you know, there's a 1 and a 1A on this album. And the 1A to me is Common People, uh, which oh, yes. is another big hit. And it's, an, it's another fantastic example of Cocker's uh, kind of tragicomic um, lyrics. You know, it's, it's about this girl who uh, he's all into and she's from the upper class and he's not. And uh, she just wants to kind of slum it, you know, for kicks because that's, that's cool, you know, to her. It's, right. It's novel. And, um, you know, it's, it's just kind of a classic Jarvis Cocker thing where like, um, you know, she says, I want to live like common people. I want to do whatever common people do. I want to sleep with common people. I want to sleep with common people like you. And he says, what else could I do? I said, no, well, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> um, and then he, I love the line. Uh, I took her to a supermarket. I don't know why, but I had to start it somewhere. Right. I took her there. Right. Yeah, and it goes through this thing. I, I said, pretend you've got no money. She just laughed and said, oh, you're so funny. It's funny. It's incredibly catchy, just like Disco 2000. But it's also, you know, it's kind of a scathing indictment of, of these wealthy socialite type people. It's again, I mean, his song, they have this underlying gravity to them i think sometimes that gravity there's a hint of anger as well oh, yeah definitely definitely you know he pulls no punches i mean listen to this section here i mean listen to this this section here rent a flat above a shop cut your hair and get a job smoke some fags which are cigarettes don't right you get angry at us and play some pool pretend you never went to school uh but still you'll never get it right because when you're laid in bed at night watching roaches climb the wall. If you called your dad, he could stop it all. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of seething. And you left out the best part, I think, is, uh, is in the next stanza where he says, um, you know, you'll never fail like common people do. Never watch your life slide out of view and then dance and drink and screw because there's nothing else to do. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah, it's great. And musically, it's... Uh... It's fantastic. It's one of those songs I think you can't get out of your head. Um, you know, it's been in, it's been in movies, TV shows, uh, which uh, I may get into a little bit later. But, you know, I think this, again, for me, Disco 2000 is the sentimental choice, but this one is, it's so close behind that I wanted to talk about it for a little bit. And it deserves recognition. I, I think this is the song that is synonymous with pulp, more so than Disco 2000. Uh, this is the one that most people think of when they think of different class and when they think of pulp, when they think of Jarvis Cocker. It's just, it's just an incredible album, uh, incredible song, rather. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, what we've gotten into some of the personal memories, but do you have anything else that you want to highlight about uh, either pop culture references or, or personal references? Oh, man, there's a lot. There's a lot, uh, but I want to take you back briefly to 1997 mm. and uh, a 20-year-old me mm. uh, excitedly signing up for America Online <laughs> so that he could scour chat rooms for women who were looking to meet offline. This was long before Tinder or Bumble, folks. Um, anyway, one of my first AOL screen names and email addresses, I don't know if you remember this, Chris, was inspired by Pulp. Uh, my initials are JD, as we've discussed, and the clever pulp-obsessed 20-year-old John came up with the brilliant genius screen name, J Disco 2000. Oh my God. That was, <laughs> right? <laughs> that was one of my first, if not my first, AOL, AIM, whatever you want to call it, screen name. And, um... Nobody really got it. Like most people who I instant messaged, they were like, J Disco 2000. They thought like I was really into Donna Summer and Casey and the Sunshine Band. 
Yeah, you'd probably, that. you'd probably be better off trying to find dudes with a name like that, I feel yeah, like. probably, right? <laughs> I'm sure there was a village people chat room somewhere. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that was the, uh, yeah, that's my, my most interesting memory. Uh, it was my first AOL email address. And I just want to say that if any of you ladies out there uh, listening chatted with JDisco2000 <laughs> in one of the sketchy Connecticut chat rooms in 97 or 98, I, I apologize for my behavior <laughs> and for uh, trying to convince you to meet me offline at 2.30 in the morning on a Tuesday. Um, I recognize now, particularly with the whole Me Too movement, that that was not appropriate. And uh, that's not like anyone to meet you. I mean, you know, these women were agreeing to meet you. Well, they didn't meet me, Chris. So no, they weren't. <laughs> no, that's not true because I know because I met some girls with you. You met online. Oh, let's not even go with that story. <laughs> Don't even, please. Um, but you know, whatever I might have said, ladies, that wasn't me. That was the cheap vodka that I drank. Right. That was Jarvis uh, Cocker. That was Jarvis Cocker. It was, Jar it was very Jarvis Cocker. Exactly. So that is <laughs> my memory, and I am very sorry. H how about you? Um, so I, you know, we've talked a little bit about the personal stuff, so I, I wanted to touch more on uh, a couple pop culture moments where the song Common People is played. And one of them, to my surprise and delight, last year as I was, or no, was earlier this year, as I was binging uh, Westworld, um, there's a scene where Common People comes on. And wow. it's kind of great. You know, Westworld is, it's about these, AI beings who are very close to being, they're synthetic humans basically. And they, uh, you know, they're in a theme park and they start to take over. And one of them uh, played by Evan Rachel Wood, spoiler alert, makes it out and is in the real world. And um, she is just like an incredible badass. And there's a scene where she's about to be murdered in the back of a car and, uh, she ends up just destroying uh, her her captors um, while common people is playing, which is you know it's this very violent scene, uh, and it's this great juxtaposition because common people has such a, a bouncy, upbeat tempo to it, and the lyrics are, are perfect too. You know, I want to live like common people. Uh, you know, here she's uh, she's a robot basically. Um, so it was it was perfectly perfectly chosen. The other one, are you familiar with the, the William Shatner version of Common People? I know it quite well, yes. Oh man, Shatner, you know, he does these spoken word <laughs> albums and uh, it's incredible. Uh, it really is. I want to live like common people. I want to do whatever common people do. I want to sleep with common people. Uh, it's it's fantastic. I recommend, you know, you can get it on YouTube or wherever online. But uh, And I suppose that's when Pulp knew that they had made it, when, when William Shatner covered one of their songs. Oh, yeah. It's like having a weird album <laughs> one of your songs. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, how, how well do you think that this embodies the zeitgeist of the mid-90s? I think it captures a certain cultural zeitgeist quite well. And by that, I'm referring to the Euro pop, Brit pop thing of the mid to late 90s. You know, people wearing strange clothing that was strange to us, maybe, that had a hint of that 1960s mod look to it. Mm -hmm. uh, this is what I think of when I think of uh, this album. And I literally did a Google image search earlier today. Uh, I typed in 1990s Brit pop fashion. Mm -hmm. And I kid you not, Chris, the first thing that popped up was a picture of Jarvis Cocker. <laughs> uh, so I think that should say something and I want to say not simply stylistically but also in terms of the music on the album yeah I think it captures a certain zeitgeist when you think about the topics that are covered or sung about on this album they're very 90s-esque I mean for crying out loud you have a song that's all about looking ahead to the year 2000 which was all that anyone was talking about in the mid to late 90s and there's a song about using ecstasy, which was everywhere in the 90s. Right. So, yeah, I think it does a pretty good job capturing the uh, cultural zeitgeist. What about you? Yeah, I think it, it sort of captures uh, a bit of a turning point 
um, you know, coming out of the grunge era, um, you know, as things were, things were changing, music was changing. Um, so yeah, I, I think it does not, not entirely, but I think it, it's kind of hard. I mean, to say what is the zeitgeist of the mid nineties is a tough question. It's kind of a hodgepodge of stuff. So. Right. It could be common people. It could be the Macarena. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, I think this captures a certain, a certain aspect of it. Um, final question. Is this a perfect album? It's a perfect mid 1990s Brit pop album. By that, I mean that when we speak of that era and if someone were to, you know, unearth a time capsule 50 years from now mm -hmm. of, of, uh, 1996 Brit pop, uh, this would be there on top of the pile of CDs, you know, right behind it would be what's the story morning glory by Oasis. Um, mm -hmm. I think this is one of the best, uh, of example of that era, uh, examples of that era and that subgenre of music. But in terms of a perfect album for all time, I'm not so sure. I love it. I love pulp. I have so many memories associated with the album. I just feel like there's a couple songs that aren't quite strong enough that keep it from being perfect. It's a phenomenal album. I think if you want perfection, you got to listen to this album's predecessor, his and hers. Um, but again, perfect Britpop album of the 1990s, yes. Perfect album for all time, I'm not so sure. Um, what about you? I, I'm going to keep it simpler. I'm just I'm going to say yes. I think. Uh, I guess I think that it's more consistently good from start to finish maybe than, than you do. Um, you know, I think, I think every song on this album is very, uh, not only listenable because that's not a very kind of damning it with faint praise, but, um, I think every song on this album is good at the very least good. And I think there's some that are exceptional and, uh, I just don't think, you know, I think it's to me like the perfect album test one of them at least is can I put it on and listen to the whole thing and never really feel like I need to skip ahead or change anything. And, and that's how I feel with this. Yeah. Anyway, um, this has been fun as always. Uh, as always. You can follow us on Twitter at uh, podcast closely and on Instagram at listenclosely.podcast. Uh, let us know what you think. Let us know if you think this is a perfect album or not. Let us know what else you might want us to cover. Maybe there's some Oasis fans out there who are enraged right now that we've had the audacity to cover Pulp before we covered Oasis. Let us know if you've ever watched a girl that you were obsessed with have sex with another man <laughs> by hiding in the closet and seeing her in her underwear. We want to know about these sort of things. I know I do, Chris. I'm sure you do as well. I, I'm in 100% agreement. Fantastic. All right, John. Always a pleasure. Talk to you next Always time. Always a pleasure.